I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. If you have your Bible, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, I want to encourage you to, to bring it or look it up online, or sorry, online, on your, on your device if you do that, but I uh, encourage you to follow along. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take one in the back. Uh, that'd be our gift to you. Matthew 4, yeah, verses 12 to 25 is where we'll pick things up soon. I want to begin with a question this morning. Have you ever had the experience of waking up and just being completely disoriented? Maybe not, not knowing where you are or what day it is or what time it is or where you're maybe supposed to be in that moment. I don't know if I'm alone in that, but I have that experience periodically where you wake up and, and you just, momentary panic, right? You try and get your brain like, what, what day is it? Am I supposed to be somewhere else? And, and generally, I'm, I'm okay and I can take a breath and relax for a moment. There are the odd time where you realize, shoot, I'm supposed to be somewhere now. It's very disorienting experience when you wake up. And so uh, it, it takes a few minutes when you wake up in that fog to get your bearings, to, to remember where you are. Am I in the right spot? Uh, what day is it? What time is it? Getting one's bearings, figuring out where you are, is, uh, is, is obviously an important thing. That's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, as we are about to begin a series of messages, walking through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But before we get to his sermon in Matthew 5, I want us to spend some time at getting our bearings figuring out where we are in Matthew's gospel and, and understanding uh, yeah, our, our, our context. So before we turn to our text that we're going to read today, Matthew 4, 12 to the end, I want to look at a few other issues. First, I want to say a couple things about the Sermon on the Mount itself. The Sermon on the Mount is, uh, is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. This large block of Jesus' teaching. In fact, it's the single largest block of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. Here, Jesus speaks to us. Here, Jesus speaks to crowds. He speaks to us, the church uh, people throughout the centuries. And he says a lot. He addresses a lot of issues. It is in the Sermon on the Mount that we hear Jesus pronounce his blessed are statements. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, etc. It's here in the Sermon on the Mount that we hear Jesus say, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It is here that we encounter Jesus' words, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. You've heard it said, don't murder. I say, don't hate. You have heard it said, but I say to you. It's here that we encounter these words, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. He says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. It is in this sermon that we hear this word of invitation from Jesus. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. It is here that we encounter these sobering words on the lips of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
Here Jesus says as well, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The Sermon on the Mount is full of uh, Jesus speaking to us. It is this large block of teaching from Jesus. Over the coming months, we will walk through Jesus' sermon, exploring all that Jesus says and wrestling with what what Jesus says means for us today. What are we to do with this sermon? And there are, in fact, many different approaches to the Sermon on the Mount that are embraced by different people, and we will walk through some of those options next week, and I will point you in the direction that I believe uh, we are compelled to go. Second, I want to say a few things about Matthew's gospel as a whole. Matthew's gospel is one of the synoptic gospels. In the, in the New Testament, there are four gospels, four tellings of the Jesus story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the first three. They're called the synoptic gospels. And then there's John. John stands alone. It's fairly unique. But what does it mean to say Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic? Some of you are aware of this, but uh, let me say a few things. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we know have uh, literary interdependence. That is... We, we know that each of these authors didn't sit down independently and simply write their story of Jesus, that, that there was some borrowing, some copying. And what I would suggest, and not copying like you, you copy someone's essay and hand it in as your own work, they simply, there was some reliance on uh, one another in one direction or another for their story uh, as they told their story. I would contend to you that Mark's gospel was the first written. Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. Uh, Mark's, I would suggest, was written in around 64 uh, AD, before Jerusalem uh, was destroyed. Mark was written for a largely Gentile church, the church in Rome. And I would suggest then that Matthew and Luke each took Mark and used Mark as a source. Uh, We know this because if you put those Gospels side by side, there is a lot that is the same, and in fact, if you look in the original language, the, the, it's identical in many, many spots. About 90% of Mark's gospel is found almost word for word in Matthew's gospel, for example. And so when we come to Matthew, we understand there's a relationship, but there's some other things. Matthew, Matthew obviously liked Mark's telling of the Jesus story, but Matthew had some other things he wanted to do. He had some other information he wanted to include. And so Matthew takes Mark's gospel, and into it, he inserts a a significant amount of Jesus' teaching, Jesus telling parables. In fact, what Matthew does, and Matthew is writing to uh, Christians with a Jewish background, probably uh, around 85 AD, 20 years after Mark was written, he's writing to Jewish Christians. And so Mark and Matthew, in his gospel, he takes these blocks of teaching that he's adding to the story, to including in his story, and he, he puts those blocks of teaching in five blocks. It's really interesting because he's writing to Jewish Christians, uh, and you might recall that the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, began with the five books of Moses, God's uh, teaching his people, but what it means for them to be his people. And so here Matthew forms his, as he shapes his gospel, he shapes it around five blocks of teaching. It is, in a sense, a a new Torah, uh, God's new law for his people, one one way to, to look at it as we come to Matthew's gospel. 
With that in mind, I want us to understand that the Sermon on the Mount is the very first of those major blocks of Jesus' teaching in Matthew's Gospel. Now, there's lots in this sermon that is challenging. There is lots in this sermon that is sobering. But there's perhaps nothing as daunting as uh, what we will encounter in Matthew 5.47 where Jesus says, I quoted this already, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We're going to wrestle with lots of this as we come to the sermon and ask, what is Jesus saying? What does this mean for us? But one thing, a little spoiler alert, as we think about Jesus' sermon, Jesus' sermon is giving us a picture of what our lives look like as the good news takes root in them. We are transformed. And so the Sermon on the Mount speaks to uh, our, our character, it speaks to our conduct as believers. It speaks to us growing in obedience and holiness. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, the church has largely failed to think carefully about her conception of holiness and her whole approach to the doctrine of sanctification. That is the doctrine concerning how we grow in Christ. And so uh, that's what we will discover when we turn to the sermon. Jesus speaks about what happens, how we are transformed as his, the good news, takes root in us. Now again, before, just before I read the text we're looking at this morning, the passage that precedes the actual Sermon on the Mount, I want to briefly note for you what has already been shared in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel begins with a genealogy. He traces the lineage of Jesus, beginning with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, down through King David and King Solomon, on to Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Next, Matthew shares his version of the Christmas story. Much of what we uh, know about Christmas comes from Luke's gospel. Matthew and Luke, it's the two of them that speak to the Christmas nativity story, if you will. And Matthew tells us about uh, the dream that Joseph had. He was going to divorce Mary quietly when he found out she was pregnant. But God spoke to him in a dream, and he took Mary as his wife, and they fled from King Herod to Egypt. And then they returned, and they returned and settled in Nazareth. From there, Matthew tells the story of the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist bursts onto the scene preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's at this point that Jesus shows up. Uh, John is reluctant initially, but Jesus has John baptize him. And as Jesus comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God in the form of a dove descends upon him and says, you hear the voice of, of God say, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then Jesus finally is led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he is tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. And that's where we pick up the story in Matthew, if you have your Bibles, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 4. Follow along as I read. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. 
At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two others, brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their, family and fo- and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. What I want to do in the time that we have together is focus our attention on three things. We're not going to look at every aspect of this passage, but three things. First, on what Jesus fulfilled. Second, on what Jesus proclaimed. And third, on what Jesus demonstrated. And what Jesus fulfilled, what he proclaimed, and what he demonstrated. So let's look at first, first at what Jesus fulfilled. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, is arrested by King Herod. Now, Matthew does not provide us with any information at this point about the reasons why. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that it was for political reasons, that that John was a political prisoner. Uh, John was very popular with the people, and Herod was scared that that popularity might lead to an uprising or troublemaking. And so, uh, from Josephus' point of view, John was a political prisoner. But later on in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew will tell us that John the Baptist, that there's a moral reason. John the Baptist had confronted King Herod for his uh, initial his affair and eventual marriage to his half-brother Philip's wife, Herodias. Because of that, Herod was not too pleased with John. But either way, Matthew here does not tell us, and his original readers likely had an idea of what was going on. But John's arrest would seem to be the motive, the catalyst, that launches Jesus' earthly ministry. It's at this point in the gospel that Jesus steps out of obscurity and he begins his public ministry. He withdraws to Galilee, Matthew tells us, that is, uh, it makes Capernaum his base of operations. Galilee was surrounded on three sides by the many non-Jewish people, non-Jewish regions. Uh, the re- thus the region is described by the prophet Isaiah as Galilee of the Gentiles. It's worth noting that King Herod ruled this territory. And so though John's arrest serves as the catalyst for Jesus' withdrawal to Galilee, uh, withdrawal to Galilee is not actually moving him away from Herod. In a sense, Jesus is moving into the the teeth of a storm. Galilee was the, the territory that Herod ruled. The region of Galilee was an area where two of the tribes of Israel Uh, centuries before had settled when Israel came into the promised land. Uh, Two tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali. And that's significant because the prophet Isaiah 700 years earlier had had prophesied about this. I'll, I'll read this again. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. Matthew asserts that Jesus settling in Capernaum, in Galilee, and from there launching his earthly ministry, fulfills Old Testament prophecy. That that this was what Isaiah spoke of centuries earlier. What exactly was prophesied? A, A great light. People living in darkness have seen a great light. People living under the shadow of death have seen a great light. This is language of deliverance. 
language of rescue, language of salvation. People who have been struggling, where life has been difficult, where there's darkness, suddenly a bright light. Some of you who have been here uh, through the summer know we, we walked through the last uh, book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. Malachi uh, was around about 400 or so years before Jesus and John the Baptist came on the scene. And Malachi wrote to God's people at a time where they had returned from exile. They'd gone into exile because of their unfaithfulness. They'd returned from exile. They were back in the land, some of them. Not everyone had returned, so the population was a fraction of what it had been before. But, but there's no king of David. There's no descendant of David on the throne. They're still under foreign uh, oppression, foreign rule, under the thumb of Persia in Malachi's day. Well, Malachi closes the Old Testament, if you will, and there's 400 years of silence. 400 years of no prophetic words from the Lord. 400 years of struggling. And Persia fell to the Greeks, and then they were under the Greek Empire, and then the Seleucids, and by the time Jesus comes, they're under Roman dominion. Palestine has just been batted around as this pawn between these mighty empires, and Israel is not returned to their glory. The kingdom of Israel is not back. There's not a descendant of David on the throne. Things are not what they were expecting. People are living in darkness, longing for deliverance, longing for rescue. And here, Isaiah speaks of a day when a great light will shine. The people living under the shadow of death will see a great light. And here, Matthew tells us that in Jesus' coming, in Jesus' launch of his ministry in Capernaum, in Galilee of the Gentiles, that day has come, a great light has dawned. People are longing for deliverance. They're longing for judgment on their enemies. They're longing for the establishment of God's kingdom. And here Jesus' earthly ministry begins, and Matthew says this fulfills that prophecy. Matthew declares that this is happening in Jesus. A great light has dawned. This prophetic word has been fulfilled. And so as we read this, as we enter into the story, we can sense the anticipation rising. We can, we can sense the excitement beginning to build. For people living in darkness, a great light has dawned. The coming of Jesus means something. Let's turn from what Jesus fulfilled to what Jesus proclaimed. Look with me at verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He mirrors, his message mirrors that of John the Baptist. John the Baptist preached exactly this. Repent, the time, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Uh, Matthew tells us from that time on, John's arrested, from that time on, Jesus begins to preach this. This marks a significant turning point. All the preparations for Jesus' ministry have complete are complete, and now Jesus is launching his ministry. Jesus begins to preach. He begins to proclaim. Repent. Repentance is a call to turn. It's a call to think differently. It's, it's this call to say, hey, you're, you're heading the wrong way. Do a U-turn and walk this way. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven... God's people have been longing for the reestablishment of God's kingdom. 
And here's this announcement that the kingdom in Christ's ministry, the kingdom has come near. This is the core of Jesus' message. Look ahead to verse 23 in our text. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. What, what is the good news? The good news is that in Jesus, history has reached a major turning point. The good news is that in Jesus, the time has fulfilled that a great light has dawned, that, that we are passing from one age into a whole new era. That in Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is invading the world, that the long-awaited kingdom of God is breaking into this world. Daryl Johnson puts it this way, the gospel according to Jesus of Nazareth is the explosive announcement that in him and because of him, the long-awaited kingdom of the living God is breaking into the world. That's the message that Jesus proclaims. That's what he preaches. Repent, turn around, uh, think differently, walk in this direction. Repent and believe the good news, the good news of the kingdom, that in my coming, the kingdom of God is breaking in, that everything changes. Everything's different. And so the anticipation continues to rise. The, the excitement continues to build. Third, let's turn to what Jesus demonstrated. Jesus does not only preach. He does not only proclaim a message, but uh, the, the proclaim the, the good news of the kingdom, but he also demonstrates something. Listen again as I read verses 23 and 24 again. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill of various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Jesus proclaims good news, good news of the kingdom, that God's kingdom rule, that what they've been waiting for is breaking into creation. And Jesus healed, Jesus restored, Jesus set broken things right. We read he healed every disease and sickness. We need to understand this about Jesus when it comes to his miracles. Jesus' miracles are not just, not just, sorry, they're not party tricks simply to get people's attention. Jesus' miracles, his mighty deeds are, are signs. They point to who he is. They point to what God is doing in and through him. And here, Jesus heals every disease and sickness. We read those with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, those suffering demon possession, those suffering paralysis. Jesus heals them. He restores. Jesus not only announced the inbreaking of God's kingdom, God's reign, Jesus demonstrated it. Jesus had power over every aspect of our lives over the spiritual, over the physical, over the emotional. Indeed, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, he says. Turn to me and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. And many came. As Jesus' ministry begins, as Jesus proclaims the good news of the kingdom, as Jesus demonstrates the power of God in their lives, bringing about healing, restoring those who are, are sick and suffering, 
Many came, large crowds came from all over, from Galilee, from the Decapolis, a a set of ten cities east of Galilee, from Jerusalem, the capital, the center of, of Israel, from Judea, the region around it, from the region across the Jordan. People come from everywhere. They heard of this Jesus who is proclaiming the coming of the kingdom, who's calling people to repent and to believe the good news. And people came, large crowds, Crowds to whom Jesus will soon speak, sharing the sermon, his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. People like you and me, ordinary people, people who are struggling, people who are broken, hurting, scared, people longing for God to show up, to establish his reign, to set things right. And next week, as we turn to the Sermon on the Mount proper, chapter 5, we will see large crowds gathering before Jesus, finding a spot on the slopes of a hill just up from the Sea of Galilee, probably a natural amphitheater. Jesus spoke to many people. And they will sit and they will listen to Jesus teach. And we will join them over the coming months. And each of those in the crowds that came, each of those who will sit before Jesus who hear what he proclaims, who will hear what he teaches, will have to choose what to do with what Jesus says. What does his announcement of the inbreaking of God's kingdom mean? Will it fit with their expectations? Will they submit themselves to what Jesus says? And we will have to make that same choice. What do we do with Jesus' words in this sermon? Sadly, we know that many of those in the crowds of Jesus' day would not receive what he said well at the end of the day. The kind of transformation that they were longing for, the kind of salvation, rescue that they wanted, was political. They they wanted the reestablishment of their nation-state in all its glory. They wanted a a human king on the throne of David. They wanted their enemies judged and and chased away. That's what they wanted. That's what they were longing for. Many in Jesus' day, that's what they wanted. We know that because the end of Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus is arrested, large crowds will cry out for the release of Barabbas, the political revolutionary and for the crucifixion of Jesus. Ironically, it is in Jesus dying on the cross that the kingdom will ultimately be established. That he will be enthroned as king as he dies for his enemies. As he pays the price for our sin. He offers that to all who will repent and believe the good news. To turn to him to receive His grace, to receive His mercy, to become kingdoms, uh, subjects of His kingdom. And what we will discover is that the true enemy is not Rome. Our true enemy is Satan, sin, and death. And Jesus will defeat our enemies. He will bring the kingdom in. In the coming of Jesus, through His life, through his 
proclamation, through his ministry, through his redemptive work on the cross, the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom of heaven has invaded this world. And in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will speak to us, to all who will listen. And he will show us what that means, the glory of what it means to be his subjects, what it means to believe the good news and be transformed by the glorious gospel. May God prepare our hearts for all that Jesus wants to speak to us in this season. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you came, that you humbled yourself and took on flesh, that you came and lived, that you entered into this ministry of redemption. And Jesus, we thank you for what you say to us in your word, in your entire word, but we thank you this morning in particular for what you will say to us in this, your Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, you say a lot and a lot of challenging, hard things. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to receive. We pray, Jesus, that you would speak and that you would prepare us to hear this, to, to hear what it means for your kingdom to break into this world, what it means for us to live as subjects of your kingdom. Jesus, work in us. We pray this in your name for your glory, Jesus, and our joy. Amen.